and the players are like actually coming out like on Twitter, getting mad at the announcers, like stop talking over my stuff and all that stuff. So these announcers are talking all about themselves and they're talking to each other, but they're not focusing on the thing that's happening. And for this instance is golf. But the same thing could happen with basketball, same thing could happen with football. If the announcers are just talking about whatever they're talking about, but not about the important thing, okay? What we're gonna find out today is somebody who was an announcer. Somebody who made an announcement. And when people ask him who he is and what his job is, he makes sure to say, my job is not to talk about me. It's not to talk about my experience. My job is to talk about the most important person. Okay, that person we're gonna talk about this morning who is the announcer is John the Baptist. So I want you to grab your Bibles, turn to the book of John. This is not written by John the Baptist. This is a quote that we get from John the Baptist. A whole section here. We're gonna look at verses 19 all the way down to 34. We're covering big sections because as we jump into this book, this book is not like um, the book of Philippians or the book of James or 1 John or something like that where it's pure teaching, okay? What the gospel of John is, we gotta remember, John is narrative, right? Just like you read books and if you've ever written an essay about, maybe your teacher says, uh, name one crazy thing that happened when you were in elementary school and you have to write like three pages on something amazing or outlandish that happened to you in elementary school, Um, That's what we're talking about right here. That's what we're reading. We're reading a narrative. In a narrative, there's teaching units, there's descriptive units, and sometimes John just talks about what's going on. So this time, we're gonna hear some quotations and all that stuff, so make sure to keep an eye on that. This is first, or this is the book of John, chapter one, verse 19. It says this, and this is the testimony of John. Whenever we see John, it's always the Baptist, okay? It's never John the Apostle. John the Apostle actually does not even mention his own name in his book. He just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even mention his own name. So so John the Baptist, this is his testimony. If I stopped right there, what's a testimony? I watched a movie last night about how these people were in a courtroom and they were um, talking back and forth. It was this old movie about this old courtroom and they were arguing back and forth and they bring a witness to come in and they would testify. So they say, I saw something and now I'm saying something. So whenever it says the testimony of John the Baptist, This is what he saw that now he's saying. Then he puts it in quotes. He says, when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That was a big question because John the Baptist essentially became like a famous outdoor preacher. You think it's cool that we're doing sermons outside. Um, There was a lot of preaching that would happen in the synagogues. Right? And you got this weird figure that draws all these people outside of the cities to go out to the wilderness by the river and listen to these sermons. And people were probably um, missing their other sermons to go to this sermon for John. So he was becoming famous and popular. They asked him this question, who are you? And I say they, they is this group of people that came from Jerusalem. It says Levites from Jerusalem, um, priests and Levites. These people who actually were related to John the Baptist. If you remember from the book of Luke, John the Baptist came from this tribe of Levi. His dad was a priest. And his mom came from a priestly family. So he could have, I guess, grown up to become a priest. And he didn't do that. He did something else. He's a preacher out in the wilderness. They ask him this question, who are you? It says, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That's a really weird sentence. You probably didn't say, and I said something and I didn't deny it. And then I said it. Right? That's a weird sentence, right? Why why would John say it like that? Because he's basically saying, John said this. He didn't deny what he's gonna say. He said it. There's like that back and forth and back and forth. That's saying what he's saying right here is so important, so important. What does he say? I am not the Christ. That was a big question. Are you the Christ? Are you that person from the Old Testament 
who's going to come and save the nation of Israel? People were thinking, maybe John is. He's dressed kind of funny. He's um, out in the wilderness. He's wearing like camel clothes. Not camel clothes. Camels don't wear clothes. Um, at least they didn't back then. I, maybe you've seen a picture of camel with clothes now. But he was wearing camel skin, like jackets. He looked like a hipster, you know? That's what I imagine John, like dreadlocks, man bun, camel jacket, right? Like a total hip. He invented hipster, I think. Um, you guys even know, raise your hand if you know what a hipster is. Okay, some of you. I was going to say that might be even too old for you. Anyway, wow, that's crazy. Hipster's an outdated thing. Anyway, um, John the Baptist, he's out there. He's drawn this attention to himself, and people ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, no, I am not. Then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He's dressed like Elijah. He's in the regions Elijah preached. He's doing things like Elijah did. Maybe he's Elijah reincarnate, right? Maybe he's Elijah come back from the dead, right? And that sounds like a weird thing. Oh, Jews didn't believe in that, right? Well, I don't think they believed in necessarily reincarnation, but they did look at the Old Testament, the last two verses, the last two verses of the entire Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 and 6, God promises, I'm going to send Elijah to you. I'm going to send Elijah to you, and he's going to prepare the way for me. So if you're living in that time, you're thinking, okay, well, God promised to send either Elijah himself or a person like Elijah to prepare the way for God's kingdom. Are you that person? And he says, I'm not. Elijah says, I'm not. Then they asked him, are you the prophet? Right? The prophet. Does, you see how in your, your Bible it has the, and then it has P that's capitalized there, the prophet. They didn't ask, are you a prophet? Because I think the right answer to that is, yes, I am a prophet. I do speak for God. But that's not what he's saying. Are you the prophet? Back in Deuteronomy 18, God promised through Moses to send another prophet that was like Moses. Okay? And Moses was unique because he didn't just hear from God and then speak. He talked to God face to face and then spoke. He was a special kind of prophet because he had a special relationship with God. And what he promised was, there's going to be another prophet that's like me, that's going to come in the future. And they never saw that prophet. So they're thinking, are you that guy? Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say concerning yourself? be kind of awkward if your parents said, hey, go ask that person at that food truck, what are you selling? And you ask them, are you selling enchiladas? And they're like, no, I'm not selling enchiladas. Say, are you selling tacos? No, I'm I'm not selling tacos. Are you selling burritos? No, I'm not selling burritos. Okay, well, what are you selling? I have to tell my parents, they sent me over here, what what, what are you selling? What's this Mexican food truck selling, right? And if not selling enchiladas, tacos, and burritos, I don't even know if they can be a Mexican food truck, but what are you selling? What's, what's, What's going on here? Right, that's, what the, that's what these Jews are asking John. And here's what he says about himself. He says in verse 23, check it out. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay? He says, I am a voice. Okay? That's important because you remember what we studied last week? What was Jesus called? Look back in your, uh, your Bible. What was Jesus called? What's the, what's the title given to Jesus in John 1, 1 to 18? What was it? Shout it out once you know it. The word, right? Now, what does John say? I'm the voice. He says, I'm not the word. I'm the voice. That's really important. I think the apostle John puts those things next to each other. And this is something, maybe you've never seen that before. Notice that. This is what we're going to do often. Whenever we read the gospel, John, we need to look at different parts of the gospel, John, to put these puzzle pieces together. He says, I'm not the, vo- I'm not the word. I'm not the, the subject. I'm the voice. I'm the one proclaiming. I'm the announcer. I'm not the subject of the announcement. I'm not the announcement. I'm the announcer. 
I'm the person shouting this. This is a quotation from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, actually, is where it comes from. And the idea of making straight the way of the Lord. They would have these, um, if a powerful king was going to come here to Elisa Viejo, what they might do is they might say, I'm going to build a new road. I'm going to build this brand new road, and there's going to be this announcer that comes on a herald, is sometimes what they're called, a person who goes before the king and says, the king's coming, the king's coming. And then that, build a road. We're going to take this. He's got a big caravan. He's got these elephants and maybe giraffes. I don't know, big animals that need to walk through. We need to build a new road for him to come. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says that about the Lord's coming. And John the Baptist says, that's me. I'm the announcer. I'm the one coming saying, we need to make a road for this Lord to come, for Jesus to come. He doesn't use that word yet, but he will. That was verse 23. Look at verse 24. This is in parentheses. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, okay? This actually, uh, they put it in quotations. There's no quotations in Greek. So this is the translators making a note on what they think is going on here. It seems like that, um, obviously, John, the, the book is written later on. It's written in about 90 AD, after the fall of Jerusalem. So it seems like from the other gospels, the people in charge, the Jews who were in charge were not the Pharisees. They were one of the types of people, one of the groups. The other group was the Sadducees, these people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They got in fights with Jesus on the Temple Mount, right? So it seems like there's a group of this Jew, of this um, priestly, you know, envoy, this group of people who comes to ask John a question. It says, it seems like a couple of them were Pharisees and they have particular interests and because they want to follow God's word exactly. And we usually know Pharisees as the bad people um, and they were in their practice, but actually they actually are the ones that followed God's word as best they could. The Sadducees didn't do that. So these Pharisees asked John, okay, well, I'm interested in a doctrinal question. It says, why then are you baptizing? Baptize. Why are you baptizing? if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. Right? Baptizing was not new. He's not saying, what are you doing? You're dunking these people in the water. What's that about? They didn't ask, what is baptism? They said, why are you baptizing? Okay? That's important because they're saying that they, they knew baptism. They actually did baptism. What baptism was before um, John came around and before Jesus came around, it was a thing that someone would do if they wanted, let's say, um, Let's look, look at a Bible character. Uh, remember the Ethiopian official, the guy who was um, the important official in Acts chapter eight who went to Jerusalem, okay? He kind of became a Jew in a sense where he wasn't born as a Jewish person, but he served God, he worshiped God, okay? If you wanted to do that, what you had to do was go get baptized. What baptism meant was a symbol of now you're part of this new group, okay? So John is not baptizing Gentiles. John is baptizing Jewish people. He's baptizing people who, in the Pharisees' minds, don't even need to be baptized. So he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing these people? Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, look at verse 29. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, when you hear the word behold, do you think of like an old English person? Like behold, you don't even think about it in an English accent. Or you think about it like in an English accent, not like an American, your accent, right? Behold, what does that mean? It means look. That's all the word means, look. That comma there is very important when it says look. He doesn't say, look, the Lamb of God. He says, look. So he's seeing everybody's attention. Hey, I need everybody's attention. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's getting everybody's attention and he's telling them, you need to look to him. Because he's the Lamb of, the, of God who takes away the sin of the world. It reminds us all of 
the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. What was that about? Why did God have these people kill animals for their sin? Why did he, why did he do that? Well, he did that as a picture of Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away, who carries away the sin of the world. John says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That's a very weird sentence. Okay, there's someone who's coming after me who actually is more important than me because he came before me. It's like, well, what? he came after and before? How's that possible? John's saying, well, Jesus, he came before me because he's God. He's always existed. And he ranks higher than me, even though he comes later than me. Okay, that's a little confusing, but that's what it's talking about. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Okay, Israel, the Jews, Israel, the Jews. Those words are gonna be used a lot. And then there's another word that's gonna be used, the world. Okay? The world and Israel, those just in the minds of the people who are reading this are set in opposition to each other. What does it say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Israel? Does it say that? It doesn't say that. The Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world, not just the Jews, but also people who are not Jewish, Gentiles like you and me. Verse 31 says, I myself did not know him, but he came with the purpose, but I came, or sorry, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness means he saw something and he said something. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so this is God. I remember in, um, when he baptized John or when John baptized Jesus, you remember that scene? Matthew three talks about it. It says, God spoke. He said something. He said, whoa, there's like this dove that comes down on Jesus. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Look what he says back in this text. He says, um, I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John says, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. What does he call Jesus in this passage? John calls him the son of God. He also calls him the lamb of God. He's called the word, right? Because he's the voice and he's the word. It's a lot, right? I know it's like, whoa, John, how are you gonna preach a sermon? You just did a really long introduction. I want you to see the whole narrative section and say, okay, this is what's going on. This is what we're studying this week. What can we learn from this? First of all, I think we learned that John, the messenger, knows his proper place. He knows that he's not the announcement. He's just the announcer. So write this down for point number one. Adopt the humble attitude of a messenger. Adopt the humble attitude of a messenger. Because sometimes we look at Bible characters and when we study narrative, we say, okay, this person does something, should we do this thing as well? And you are not John the Baptist, which means you don't have to eat locusts and wear a camel, I don't know, fur thing and be a hipster. You don't have to grow out a man bun. I know some of you want to do that. Ryan Justice, I know that you want to grow out a man bun. It's not going to happen, right? You don't have to do that. Sorry for picking on you, Ryan. Um, You don't have to be John the Baptist but you know that we actually have a role to be a messenger, right? You know, the rest of the Bible tells us if we're Christians, if we understand who we are in relation to Jesus and we want to be like Jesus, you know what Jesus calls us to do? He calls us to be messengers too. And the problem is a lot of people get in the way of the message, right? Even when they go to present the message, they often talk about themselves. They often talk about what they want. And just think about this, okay? God calls us to be messengers of the truth of Jesus, First of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, have we ever been a messenger about the truth of Jesus? Have you ever told somebody about Jesus? And furthermore, I think John could tell people about Jesus and then also talk about himself. But I think in John, we find a good model because he doesn't do that. He directs all the attention 
back to Jesus. He says, he's the one. You're asking me if I'm the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. Jesus is. Jesus is the one you're supposed to be looking at. Being a messenger just automatically should bring some humility because you're recognizing I am just a messenger. That's what my job is. My job is not to receive people's glory. My job is to point them to somebody else. And when we become selfish, right, oftentimes our selfishness shows most in when we don't share the truth. When we don't have the humble attitude of a messenger, we think, oh, well, I know my friends, they don't know Jesus. I know they're not Christians, but I don't want to tell them right now. We can, I can tell them later. I need to get to know them for three years before I can bring this stuff up or invite them to church. I don't need to do that. Right? Well, the truth is you could do that in, a, in an instant. You could do that in a day. You could talk to people and invite them to church because you have the humble attitude of a messenger. I hope that you do. The wrong attitude is to say, well, we're going to do everything for myself, not for for Jesus, because that's the one that we're supposed to serve. Paul said something similar. He said in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, when I came to your town, the Corinthian town, this town that's Corinth, he said, I didn't come preaching lofty wisdom. He says, I didn't come telling you all these amazing things and all these philosophical ideas. He says, I didn't come like that because I wanted you to know one thing first and foremost. I wanted you to know that Jesus Christ died for your sin. He says, that's what I came preaching. I could have preached so many other things. But what did I, I focused on one thing with you, Corinthians. This is Paul talking. I focused on Jesus and Jesus crucified. It says, I was with you in much weakness and fear and trembling. Paul says, he was scared, right? Was John the Baptist scared? I bet he was scared at some points. That doesn't mean that you can't be scared to preach the gospel. But it does mean that you need to preach the gospel. It does mean you have to do it even when you're scared, just like Paul was. He says, I was trembling. I was afraid. And my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The problem is when people, when they preach about the gospel and they want to make it all about, you know, helping your life and making it better and they have, you know, fancy illustrations, sometimes that can take away from the message. And what Paul said was, I actually preached a very simple message to you, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And that's the most important thing. That you're a sinner, just like I'm a sinner, and you deserve to be punished by God, just like I deserve to be punished by God, but Jesus can save you. And Jesus promises he will save you if you call on him and if you ask him to save you. That was Paul's message. He says, I could have preached about theology and I could have talked about, you know, the atonement. I could have talked about all these amazing sovereignty of God issues, but I talked about one thing with you. That's the most important thing. We can talk about those other things, but not until you get this right. What was the message of Jesus, right? Or of John. He had the humble attitude of a messenger, but what's, our message. Look at verse 29, back in John chapter 1. John 1, 29. This is kind of like the middle, the theme of this section. It says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming. He saw Jesus. Notice even the pattern there. John sees Jesus. And what does John say? Everybody, look at Jesus. I saw something and I said something. What is that? Testimony. That's witness. If you have trusted Jesus, you now have the ability to say, I've trusted Jesus. Hey, everybody else over here, trust in Jesus. Look to him. Point number two is this. Before any of that, you need to depend on Jesus. Depend on him to pay for your sins. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who carries it away. That's what that word means, to take away. Right? How can you take away sin? How much does your sin weigh? Right? How much does lying weigh? How many pounds is it? <laughs> Can't take it away. Right? See, you see, it's an illustration. It's just a example that, that Jesus or John's giving here. He can't, when it says take it away, 
He's talking about something specific. He's saying to take care of it, to pay for it. And that's the language you use in this point. But he takes it away. How does he do that? Well, I was reminded of this um, because I saw this video this week of this little nine-year-old boy who saved this like 73-year-old man. It was crazy. Basically what happened was this 73-year-old man was working under his car. So he had his car, you know, up on um, the blocks basically and the car fell on him. So he couldn't get out. He was stuck. So he laid there and he was asking for help, crying for help. And nobody was around. This was out in a pretty rural area, kind of out of the, the main town. This was at his house and nobody helped him. And he said, he said, I had one last big gasp of air, one last gasp. And I yelled and I yelled and said, help, help, help. And then I just said, that's it. That's all I can give. If I die, I die. I'm done. This little nine-year-old boy heard this guy. This nine-year-old boy grabs the jack, which is the thing that lifts the car up. He rolls it over to the car, this nine-year-old kid. Imagine this. And he starts jacking up the car and he jacks the car up. And this old man who's in some serious pain, he is able to crawl out because this person came and saved him. What did he have to do? He called. He called. That's exactly what the Bible tells you to do. Sin weighs more than a car does. It's more dangerous than a car. And what you have to do is what we, I have to do. We have to call on Jesus to save us. It's not, hey, I need to start working out so I can start pushing this car up, you know, get some big pec muscles, do a lot of push-ups, and then maybe I can get the car off myself, right? Some people say that about church. Like, I can just come to church. If I start reading the Bible, I can be a good person, and then God will be like, yeah, yeah, you're a good guy. Like, I'll totally let you into heaven. It doesn't work that way. You're being crushed. You need someone to come and save you. That's what Jesus does. That's why John doesn't say, hey guys, work really hard. Hey guys, start reading your Bibles. Hey guys, start praying more. Hey guys, you should probably obey your parents more. He doesn't say, he says, look, look. The rest of the Bible says, look and ask, look and ask. Romans 10 says we're supposed to call on his name. That's what it means to ask, call on his name. Ask Jesus to save you. Talk to him and say, I am being crushed by my sin because I deserve it. I deserve to be punished for my sin. And I need you to take my sin away. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need to ask. I want you to turn to a passage. I think John the Baptist was probably thinking about this passage when he said this verse. Turn back in your, in your Bibles to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is a famous chapter. You might know it. What he talks about here is a lamb. Isaiah gives this illustration. He says, we're like lambs. And there's another person, there's a person and there's people. The people in this passage are talking about, it seems like these people who've been saved from their sins. And the person is Jesus, even 600 years before he came. Isaiah 53, verse five, says, this is kind of jumping in the middle of it, or go up to verse four. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. You know what it means to bear? To carry. That's what it means, to take it off of you and to carry it himself. And that's what Jesus does. He takes our sin off of him and carries it himself. It says, he carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We looked at him and said, you're just being punished by God, All right, which is what the first century Jews did. Recognize that. They looked at Jesus and they said, oh, well, he must have been a criminal. That's why he died. But now they're looking back saying, oh, it wasn't because he was a criminal. It's because he was bearing my sin. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, which is what we deserve. We deserve to be pierced and crushed. Upon him, even, you notice how that language is just so often in the Bible, putting sins on him, him carrying it. That's why he says that he takes away the sin of the world. 
It says, on him, upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. He got the discipline so that we didn't have it. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, put on him the iniquity of us all, of all the people who are right with him. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, I think that's what John's talking about here, the lamb of God, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shearers, the people who are gonna kill this sheep, like he's silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They didn't get it. When Jesus died, they're like, well, great, criminal's dead. They didn't understand that was for them. Verse nine says, and they made his grave with the wicked. He died next to some not good people. He died next to some criminals with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That's talking about how when Jesus died, a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, came and bought a tomb for him, gave him his own tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I guess the difference between that illustration with the nine-year-old boy with the jack and um, this, you know, 73-year-old man, I guess the difference in our story is Jesus did not get something else to fix the problem. He came underneath and took the punishment in our place so that he died, so that he experienced God's punishment for us. He comes underneath. And ultimately, what you're asking Jesus to do, when you ask him to save you, you know what you're asking him to do? You're asking him to crawl underneath the car and to take your place and to crawl out. That's what you're asking Jesus, which is why Christians, when we live our lives, we are like excited to tell people. People, because everybody's, you know, this is a weird image, but everybody's stuck under their own car, right? Everybody's stuck. You, you, I can't help you. You can't help me because we're all stuck underneath a car. There's only one person who's perfect. There's only one person who can pull you out underneath that car, and that's Jesus. He's the only one that didn't sin. He's the only one that's able to save us. We need him to save us. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's gonna do something good through this bad thing that he did to Jesus, because it was in our place. You're not gonna be a good messenger. You'll, you'll never really, probably, never gonna be a messenger unless you have embraced this message, unless you understand that Jesus died for you, and that if you ask him to save you, even today, he could save you. He could forgive all of your sins, past, present, future, gone. And he could give you his perfect righteousness. All the good things he ever did, that he earned in his life of being a perfect seventh grade student, a perfect child to his parent, to his parents, a perfect brother to his siblings. He was perfect. He can give you all that good stuff that he did and he can take the punishment for you. He's the only one that can do that. You have to depend on him. You have to ask him. That's what John does. And then after John does that, he says, look to Jesus. Look at him. He's the lamb of God. He can take away your sins to the people. Because guess what John can't do? John can't take away their sins. You know the message of John, right? You know the big thing that he preached was one word, one word. We use it a lot here at church. Repent. That was his message. He says, repent. You guys got to turn away from your sin. You got to turn away from your sin. But the problem was the message of John was insufficient. It didn't do enough. Repent, was the, that was the start. But what were they also supposed to do? Trust God. Put their faith in the Lamb of God. Because imagine he had this whole group of people who were with him. 
And he'd been preaching, repent, repent. You guys got to turn around from their, your sins. And they're like, okay, we're doing that. We're doing that. What, what now? And then John says, everybody, get your attention off me. Look, the Lamb of God, he can take away your sin because I can't. I can tell you to repent, but, but he can take away your sin. That's why your job is a lot like John. You can tell people to repent, but you have to say, look, you have to look to Jesus because he can save you. And we need to be good messengers about that. I mean, if you've really been saved by Jesus, let today be the day that you're more motivated than ever to tell people about that. If he came and he saved your life, tell people about that. Be excited to tell people about that. Persuade people. That's point number three. Write this down. Persuade people that Jesus saves. Persuade people that Jesus saves. One way that we do that is by sharing something that we call testimonies. What's a testimony? I said, what's your testimony? You could say, well... um, I was born in a Christian family. Right, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, I love when people say you're born in a Christian home. It's like, oh, when did your home repent of their sins? Right? <laughs> your house it must be a righteous house. Were you born in the temple or something? Like, like what's that, what are you talking about? Christian home. Right? Usually what people mean about that is their family, right? Their parents were Christians. Right? But our testimony, what are we saying? We're testifying about something that happened. Right? Notice what John does in this passage. John the Baptist, he says, I saw something and now I'm going to say something. Look what he says in verse uh, 33, or sorry, 32. It says, and John bore witness. This is his testimony. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, not, not at least as the Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, it's this guy who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the Christ. This is the son of God. He saw something and he said something. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us some important instructions. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We need to persuade people. Because the problem is most people don't think that they're in trouble, right? Most people, if you ask the average person, are you going to be, like, when you die, are you going to be in trouble with God? They're like, no, like, God thinks I'm a good person, right? I'm, I'm fine. Most people don't see that they're in trouble. So what he says here is knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear we ought to have for God, that people have a big problem before him. We persuade others. There's another passage. I want you to write this one down. Colossians chapter one, verse 28 and 29. We're gonna turn to this one in our small groups this week on Wednesday night. This one, Paul says about Jesus, he says, him we proclaim. He had just mentioned Christ earlier in the verse before. So he says, we proclaim Jesus. That's who we tell people about. Warning everybody, right? That's a part of talking to people about Jesus, right? We gotta warn them. So you're, you're stuck underneath the car. You need someone to come up and save you. Warning everybody and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Right? The teaching isn't just for non-Christians, right? It's for, us. it's for us too, if we're Christians. We need to keep being taught about Jesus. We need to keep understanding him. We need to be taught so that we might present everyone mature. We want us to be grown up, right? That's what the word mature means. It means grown up. It means grown up in Christ. That you're not acting like a baby, right? Babies act like babies, Seven-year-olds, anybody have a sibling that's like six, seven, eight years old, right? What do they act like? They act like six, seven, eight-year-olds, right? They act like little kids, right? Your siblings who are fourth, fifth grade, they think they're really cool, right? right? They think they're awesome, right? That's what your older siblings think about you. It's like, they're in junior high. They think they're so cool, right? They act like fifth and sixth graders. You guys act like seventh and eighth graders, right? Your leaders, hopefully, act like 
adults, right? Because they're mature. They're older. They're grown up. And that's what it's saying. He wants every person to be mature in Christ, not just a baby in Christ, not just in Christ, but mature in Christ, acting like Jesus, really acting like Jesus. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Because here's the thing about proclaiming this message, right? It sells itself, right? Because God's working through it. Sometimes we're afraid to tell people about Jesus because we think, oh, well, they won't listen. They won't pay attention. It won't do any good. It'll just make me lose friends. You ever thought that before? I've thought that before, right? Now's not a good time to bring it up because then it's just going to push them away. And, you know, well, Paul says when you proclaim Jesus, guess what God does through that? He's working through that. He'll work on their hearts to either bring them near or I guess for some to, to reject it. But we got to tell them anyway. The more we think about this, the more we think about our salvation, that more it should get us motivated and excited to tell people, hopefully at least. There was one time I was on a pastor's retreat and um, I was on Google Chrome. That's the internet that I use, Google Chrome. Um, Google Chrome's kind of cool because you can add little extensions. I was um, playing a YouTube video. I think it was with Pastor Rod. And with Pastor Rod, he looks at my YouTube and he's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, what? He's like, you, you don't have an ad blocker? Well, how do you not have an ad blocker? So he goes, you know, Pastor Rod's very techie. So he goes, grabs my computer, goes, right? it probably made that sound. I was like, whoa, whoa, genius. So he goes on like Google extension. He gets this thing that blocks all the ads. So then I never have an ad, right? And it's like all blocks him. I'm like, that's, re- that's really cool. Anything else? He's like, yeah, one more, one more thing. And he goes on there, right? Goes to the Google extension store. And then he gets me this thing called Video Speed Changer, okay? Video Speed Changer, let me just tell you, okay? Changed my life. Here's my, my selling point on this. This thing lets you, with the press of a button, speed up any video. If it's on YouTube, Vimeo, if it's you know, embedded into Facebook, anywhere, it will speed any video up to as fast as you want, up to 10 times speed, okay? If you think I talk fast, you should imagine how fast I listen to things. I love everything two times speed, three times speed occasionally, right? And I did a lot of online school. Okay, I'm still doing online school. Four times speed, some of the old professors, right? Four times speed works because, you know, the professors, they talk like this. And then it's like, okay, speed up, speed up. And then you speed them up. Guys, changed my life. Changed my life. You should go do this. Evan Jacobson, right? He's in seminary with me. He's always asking me. It's funny because like Pastor Rod will teach me things and I will teach them to somebody else. He's like, this changed my life. This is awesome. I got to tell you about it. I probably told 20 people. Right now I've told 100 people. Uh, I told probably 20 different people about, dude, you don't have video speed changer? Dude, come on. Let me get it. And then I go, and I change their life too. It's so exciting. I'm like this evangelist for Google, you know, video speed changer. I want to tell everybody about it because it made my life so much better and it made my life easier. And I got through school listening to things at three times speed. And maybe I didn't absorb the information as much as I should, but whatever. I got through it. I graduated, right? Here's the point. I'm so excited about it because it was made such an impact on me. It changed the way that I do things. Jesus did so much for me that is so much beyond Google's video speed changer, right? That's nothing compared to what Jesus did for me and hopefully what Jesus did for you. And the excitement that you should have and the enthusiasm that you should have to tell people should be off the charts because what he did for you was off the charts. You're a really satisfied customer, hopefully, 
Hopefully it's changed your life, what Jesus has done. If you have looked, and some of you, I know you're not Christians and you haven't looked to Jesus. You've looked to yourself. You've looked to your Bible reading. You've looked to your performance. You've looked to your words. Maybe you've looked to your parents. And you think that maybe because you're in a Christian home or family or whatever, maybe that will make you right before God if you die. But I just want to tell you, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. You have to look to him. And don't just look to him. Look to him with faith. Trust that he'll save you. And the Bible says that he will. That doesn't have to happen at revival. You know that, right? Jesus doesn't save at revival. Jesus saved when he died on the cross, right? It doesn't have to happen at the summer blitz. It doesn't have to happen when you're an adult. It can happen now if you are convicted of your sin and you know that the car is on top of you and you got to get it off and you can't do it and you need someone else to come save you. Only Jesus can save you. If that's true and you've been saved, you got to persuade people. This is the biggest, most important announcement of all. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for people like John the Baptist who in the Bible were unashamed to point people to you. It was amazing that he was the voice. He was not the word. He was the voice. I pray that we would be the voice for you, the word. That we tell people that you're God, that you're able to save them, that, that you, Jesus, have all the power to make us right, have a right relationship with, with, with the Father. I pray some of these students for the first time would have their eyes opened. That is a miracle. It's an impossibility for someone to do it on their own. I ask you to be gracious to them. Open their eyes. Let them see that. And please make messengers out of these students. Please make them bold messengers that aren't afraid of what people think of them or afraid that people won't embrace the message. We know it's true. Pray that we tell people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.